Many of us may be aware that in this passage where Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Uh, And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And we have this three times, three times the question, three times the answer, that um, there are different words for love. Uh, In this case, agapeo and phileo, or agape the noun and philos the noun. So there's two different words for love in the Greek. And and in, in many cases, a lot of expositions or a lot of sermons on this passage of Scripture um, emphasize the two different Greek words for love. And I just want to acknowledge I'm not going to do that. Where, where I have come to is that it's not, the difference is not significant. Um, one thing it would be helpful for us to know, a lot of times we've heard that agape is the spiritual love, the unconditional love. Um, but we need to... We need to kind of rid ourselves of that notion. Um, um, the, world, the world loves the darkness. And that's uh, an agape, it's, agape is used for that, for the world's love for the darkness. When Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, he loved her, it says, agape, love. So we, we know that agape is not in and of itself necessarily unconditional love. I don't want to go into all of that. There's semantic ranges of words. If you want to go into it deeper, guess where I put it? So it's in a footnote. It's a long footnote. It'll be on the website. But I just wanted you to know that I did think of it. So when, you, when you're like, why didn't he talk about the different words? There I've talked about it. And we'll ignore it from now on. Okay. Last, last week... Uh, Simon Peter, a Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, John and James, and two others of Jesus' disciples, so seven disciples, they went out on the Sea of Galilee fishing. They were out all night, and they didn't catch anything. And Jesus then stands on the beach, and he calls out, to them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And when they had done this, they weren't able to haul the net in because of the great number of fish. It was in this way that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples. Therefore, come to verses 7 to 8, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard, it is the Lord, he put his outer garment on, or he tucked up his outer garment. We could potentially translate it both ways. For he was naked. Now, a lot of our translations may say he was stripped for work. Uh, For work is not in the Greek. It just says, for he was naked. That's, That's all it says. And he cast himself into the sea. So I just want to briefly give us a picture for maybe what's, what's happening. Peter may have previously removed his outer garment. If you remove your outer garment, you have on an inner garment. That's the whole point of calling it an outer garment. So there would have been an inner garment, whether it was a tunic or whether it was some, something close to like a loincloth of something like that. So he may have removed his outer garment so that he was naked. In, that case, in this case, we don't mean stark naked. We mean, we mean stripped for work. 
All right. In that case, then, what Peter does is before he jumps in the water, he puts his outer garment back on. And we'd be like, why, why do that? It's not how you go swimming, right? You take more clothes off to go swimming. So if, in fact, Peter is putting more clothes on, particularly a cumbersome outer garment, um, the reason he does that is because he feels it inappropriate. He feels it not seemly to approach his Lord, his now resurrected Lord, in any kind of state of undress, essentially. Um, that's, that's one. Even though it was going to be more cumbersome to get there, swimming with that on in the water. The other, on the other hand, it's possible that the outer garment was all Peter had on. In other words, he wasn't wearing the usual inner garment. And there could be reasons for that, given, given their work out in the boat. So it may be all he had on him was the outer garment. Um, and, and therefore, the point is, he was naked underneath. And again, the word there is not intended to be graphic or something. It's just, basically, it's just a way of saying he, all he had on was his outer garment. So then, what do you do before you cast yourself into the sea? Well, you, you tie up with your rope. You kind of tie up the belt around that outer garment. You tie it close. And then you tuck up the long folds of it into your belt. Elsewhere, it's called girding up your loins. Right? So that you have... And why would he be doing that? So that when he jumps in the water, he has more freedom of movement. He can move more freely. Part of me just wanted to tell you that so that you can kind of have both options and see, well, what's going, what does it mean he was naked? What's going on there? Um, but the other, the other reason I bring that up is because Peter descri- John describes it. And he describes it very vividly because he was there. He was there in the boat and he remembers watching. He, 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 he remembers telling Peter, it is the Lord. And then he remembers Peter's response, which John couldn't have been too surprised at, perhaps, by this time. He remembers Peter's response. He remembers Peter immediately either tucking up his garments or getting his outer garment on really quick. And then he remembers watching Peter cast himself into the sea to come to Jesus more quickly. Why does Peter do this? And none of the other disciples do this. Well, first of all, there's Peter's personality. Now, you know, we've, we've discovered that doubting Thomas is a very inappropriate title for Thomas. Um, I would suggest that impetuous for Peter is perhaps also inappropriate. That kind of bears a, like a negative connotation to it that I don't think is fair to Peter. Let's be fair to these disciples, right? Maybe it would be more accurate to say that Peter was a man of action in your handout. So just to paint the portrait, it's Peter who says to Jesus when he sees him walking on the sea, Peter says to him, Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Let me do something here. It's Peter who says to Jesus when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make I will make three booths here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's Peter who, when the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees come to arrest Jesus in the garden, it's Peter who draws his sword and strikes the slave of the high priest and cuts off his ear. He's a man of action. He's also a forthright man. You know, you know what you get. 
when you're dealing with Peter. He speaks what is on his mind in your handout. He held nothing back. And we're, we're going to see that. Look, let's continue just painting the portrait of Peter. After the first miraculous catch of fish at the beginning, it's Peter who, like, who falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am, I am a sinful man. When Jesus asked the twelve, all twelve of them, Do you want to go away from me too? Do you want to stop following me like these other people are? Peter, it's Peter who answers, apparently for all the rest of the disciples, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus asks his disciples at another time, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they, some of the other disciples, I believe, gave some answers, but then it's Peter who answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On the other hand, we have a different kind of a flavor in this part. When Jesus was telling the disciples of the suffering and death that awaited him in Jerusalem, it's Peter who takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He speaks what's on his mind. The other disciples may have been thinking the same thing. We get after Peter for saying it. But who's to say everyone else wasn't thinking it? Peter says it. When Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, It's Peter, who says, I'm sure what everyone is thinking. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And then he says, you will never wash my feet, ever. And then, Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head, after what Jesus says. He's only giving vent to what everyone else wanted to say, but didn't dare. When Jesus said to the disciples, Where I am going, you cannot come. It was Peter who asked what everyone else wanted to know. Lord, where are you going? Why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's a man of action. He's not in the habit of holding anything back. And that hasn't changed. When Peter heard, it is the Lord... He cast himself into the sea, the more quickly to come to Jesus. So, it's who Peter is. This is what Peter does. It's how he works. But there's another explanation, isn't there? It's Peter, who for all of his confessions of faith that we just read, and he, he's, he tended to see things very clearly at basic level. For all his avowals of loyalty and devotion. It's Peter who has now denied Jesus three times. Now we, were, we, we looked at the fact that Peter was put in a spot that the rest of the disciples were not in. Would the rest of the disciples have fared any better? Now we know John was there, but it seems that John was known already by the gatekeeper. And so he was already known there. So he didn't face the same trial that Peter faced. God in his sovereignty, brothers and sisters, put Peter in that courtyard at that time for him to fail. Now God wasn't wishing his failure. God wasn't at fault for his failure. But God in his sovereignty placed Peter there because that was what Peter needed.
He's the one who denied Jesus three times. And he denied not only that he was Jesus' disciple, he denied even knowing who Jesus was. I think we're all like, oh, you know, I I can put myself in his shoes. I get it. I I don't know if we really grasp what a huge failure that was. And that's not just being hard on Peter. Who of us, yes, who of us would have done better? But that doesn't matter. If it was me, it would have been just as big of a failure. In that case, we could ask, why isn't Peter hanging back in shame? Like, if I was the one that denied Jesus three times and there he is, am I jumping out of the boat or am I kind of in the back of the boat hanging my head? I believe the reason he's not hanging back in shame has everything to do with the fact that Jesus has already come to him separately on the very day that he was raised up from the dead. Peter has already had a meeting with Jesus. He's already had a meeting with Jesus. We don't, we don't, we're never told, we're never given any glimpse into what passed in that meeting. Maybe Peter never told. But certainly we know Jesus must have extended to a shamed and a broken Peter his grace and his love and his forgiveness. So the Peter who we see now in our mind's eye, we see him. Do you see him? Like, casting himself into the sea. That's the Peter who loves in your handout much. He loves much because he sees how much now he's been forgiven. Now that's not to say that the other disciples' love is inferior. They don't love as much because they didn't cast themselves into the sea. They must not see how much they've been forgiven. Or maybe they haven't been forgiven as much as Peter. No, that's not the point. The point is not that John hangs back because he's lacking in love. The point is just Peter and Peter's story. Peter's personality. Peter's denial. Peter's knowledge that he's been forgiven. So certainly, in our own way, even if it doesn't mean casting ourselves into the sea, we all ought to be those who love much because we see how much we have been loved and how much we've been forgiven. The measure of your love is the measure, right? Jesus said to the woman, to the Pharisee. Um, the measure of our love for God is the measure of our knowledge of his forgiveness of us and how much we've been forgiven. In fact, Jesus says, in another place, that it is our love that is the sign to us we have been forgiven. How can a person who doesn't love claim to have, ever, claim to have been forgiven? If I don't love God at, at the most basic level, and if I, if I don't love his children, how can I claim to be a forgiven person? Peter loves much, because he sees now how much he's been forgiven. He denied Jesus, and Jesus came to him. Came to him. But now, here's the question. When Jesus extends to Peter his grace and love and forgiveness, we know that's who Jesus is. Does that automatically mean that Peter is reinstated as one of the twelve? 
Because I think we just take it for granted. Oh, Jesus forgave him. Oh, Peter's one of the 12 again. He's an apostle. Right. Now, I would suggest it is one thing to be forgiven and restored in one's relationship with Jesus. It's quite another thing to be commissioned to the very highest, if we're to use that word in this context, the highest position of stewardship and servant leadership in the kingdom of heaven. Right. As an example, you could have a, you, you could have a pastor fall and he can be restored and he ought to be restored and welcomed back into the body in relationship. But is he, then, is he necessarily then entrusted with a leadership role again, with a servant, a servant role in the, in the church again? So we see, well, there's, there's a difference. Now here, we're not just talking about pastor or something. We're talking about an apostle. How is the Peter who lapsed so severely publicly denying he's Jesus' disciple, publicly denying he even knows who Jesus is, how is he to be fully restored in your handout? And then, received by the future church, not just as one of the apostles, but as one of the pillars of the church. I hope we can see how unexpected and how astonishing that would be. Of course, Peter's not thinking of all that when he casts himself into the sea. He's just thinking at that moment, in your, I don't know if this is in your hand. Well, it is, I think. He's thinking of his love. His love for the one he denied. And, and here's a, an important thing. A love that he probably feels unworthy now, even to confess. How, how can I come to Jesus and tell him I love him when I just did that? I can come to Jesus and tell him how shamed I am, how sorry I am, how horrible I feel, but how can I profess my love to him when I just failed like that? Once again, Peter comes to shore before the rest of the disciples do. We don't know what he said to Jesus. We don't know what Jesus said to him. Certainly something must have passed between them. When the rest of the disciples arrived in the boat, they saw a charcoal fire in place, fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus invites them to come and have breakfast. And so now we pick up in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The last time we heard Simon, son of John, was back in John chapter 1, when Jesus first met Simon. Andrew found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Apart from that time, when Jesus first met him and gave him the name Cephas or Peter, the only other time that we see Jesus using the name Simon, son of John, is again when he 
pronounces a blessing on him and assigns him the name Peter. So Matthew 16, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, which in Aramaic is actually an abbreviated form of John in, in, in Greek. So it's, he's saying again, Simon, son of John. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So if you see that, look, there's two other places where Jesus calls Simon, Simon, son of John. And both of those places, it's connected with this new name that Jesus is giving to Simon. And therefore, in both places, it's connected with the role that Simon is going to have in the church of Jesus Christ. It's in this light, then, that we hear the risen Lord, now, saying to Peter, after his threefold denial of Jesus, Simon, son of John. Wait, wait, wait. Again, when we hear that, two times before he said that, two times it's been connected with his new name and his role in the church. Now Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, to get, to get us thinking, I want to ask you this question. Why does Jesus ask this question? Why? And let me ask you this. Why does he ask it now? Hasn't Jesus already met with Peter? Why did he save it till now? It appears that this question is not asked privately. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, I, I, I think quite confidently, Jesus does not take Peter off to the side and privately ask him this question. He asks it in the presence of all the other disciples. Peter has denied Jesus publicly. Now Jesus asks him publicly, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these men love me? Again, I have another footnote. There's footnotes. If you have a question, maybe it's dealt with there. Because there's other interpretations of what Jesus means by these. I believe it's quite clear to me, at least, that he means, do you love me more than these men love me? At one time, Peter might have believed that could be the case. And again, it's not that Peter was this arrogant man who's like, yeah, I love you more than everyone else. It's just that Peter was so convinced, he was so confident in the strength of his own devotion to Jesus. So when Jesus said to the disciples, you will all fall away from me this night, it was Peter. Peter who answered, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Peter isn't, that's not a put down to all the other disciples. It's just Peter saying, even if everyone else does, even if the rest of the 12 do, I will not. I will speak for myself here. I will not. Chapter 13, we hear Peter saying to Jesus, 
Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I, I, not we. He said we before in other cases, but here he just speaks for himself. They may not, but I will lay down my life for you. Again, we ought not to accuse Peter of some arrogance. There is pride here. But it's not the kind of arrogance that we might think. It's a sincere, a sincere self-confidence that will definitely have the tendency of elevating Peter in his own eyes above the rest of the disciples. They may, I won't. They may not, I will. They may fall away. They may not be willing to follow Jesus even to death, but Simon will not fall away. Simon will go with Jesus even to death. And it's that self-confident spirit. And it's interesting because it's a confidence in his devotion to Jesus. See, that's what we, we're like, well, it's, 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 it almost comes across as a spiritual confidence because it's confidence in my devotion to Jesus. Nevertheless, it's still a self-confidence. It was that self-confident spirit Jesus challenged Peter about when he came to Peter, James, and John, all three in the Garden of Gethsemane, found all three sleeping. And he says, not to all three, at least initially, he says to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch for one hour? And in the end, it was that self-confident spirit that was proved to be so empty in your handout. When Peter denied Jesus not just one time, not just two times, but three times in a row. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Even if all these should fall away, Simon, will you follow me even to death? Now, I'll ask you this question. How would you like to be in Peter's shoes right now at this moment? What are you going to say? Right? How should we answer a question like this? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, Peter knows that he does Love Jesus. Peter loved him before. He loved him before. He loves him now. But there's no longer any self-confidence here, is there? His love for Jesus, as ought to be true of each one of us, his love for Jesus is anchored, it's anchored now in his awareness of his own sinful frailty, weakness, and so also of the mercy and love and forgiveness he has received. So he doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you. Or, yes, Lord, I love you and will never fall away again. I did once, but I won't again. I love you and I won't do it again. 
doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you, and I will follow you this time, even to the death. He doesn't make any of these grandiose professions that he's made before. Yes, Lord, I love you, and, and Lord, here are all the proofs of that love. Because after all, what are the proofs that Peter can give? Right? The most recent evidence, the only evidence of anything that Peter has to give is casting himself into the sea. And denying Jesus three times in a row. Peter doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you. Much less, yes, Lord, I love you more than these. He drops off the more than these. He understands. He says only, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, we know Peter is not saying, yes, Lord, and I know you already know this. So why are you even asking me this? No, what is Peter saying when he says, yes, Lord, you know? In this way, he confesses his love for Jesus. And this is so, so wonderful, so instructive to each one of us this morning. He confesses his love while at the same time submitting that love wholly to Jesus for his recognition and his validation. Yes, Lord, I love you. But it doesn't matter in the end what I say that I know. It only matters, Lord, what you know. Do you see that? Yes, Lord, I love you, but it doesn't matter what I know. It only matters what you know. And so I submit to you the love I profess for your validation, for your recognition. You know. On the one hand, Peter is appealing to Jesus' divine knowledge. In a minute, he'll say, you know all things. But on the other hand, I think he's also referring to what passed before. The first time Jesus came to him. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Because in the face of my complete and total failure, you came to me. And you loved me. There's no self-confidence here. It's a very different Peter than we have ever met before. Brothers and sisters, you see that in Thomas. See how Jesus, God, sovereignly orchestrated the reality that Thomas was not there in the room the first time. How God brought that about because he was going to work in Thomas. And now now we see Jesus working in Peter. And he's even doing a work now, which we're about to see. Gone now, then, is the self-confidence. In its place is a humility. And in your handout, a spirit of dependence that will enable Peter to succeed in the future where he could only fail in the past. Peter said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my lambs. How astonishing is that? That Jesus now entrusts to Peter the stewardship and care of his own lambs. Like, I I don't know if we grasp this. Peter just said, I don't know who Jesus is. And now Jesus entrusts to Peter the care of his own lambs. By all human standards, by every human standard, that defies 
All expectation. And obviously, Jesus then doesn't do this because he's found some innate worthiness. Oh, but I see something in you, Peter. I, I think you're to be trusted. I see, I see better in you. It's not because of anything like that or any fitness that he's discovered in Peter. Why then does Jesus do what appears so irresponsible at a human level? Well, at one level, all we can answer is because of Jesus' own sovereign and gracious choice. What else can we answer? Isn't that the way that we feel when we come to God and we see that here I am, a sinner saved by his grace, and I wonder why? At one level, I can only resolve that into the, into the beautiful answer of his sovereign and gracious choice. Because there's nothing in me. But at another level, we can also answer, because Peter has come to see just how unworthy and how unfit he is, and so at the same time, in your handout, He's come to possess the only true worthiness and the only true fitness for service in Christ's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I think we know this, but how often do we need to be reminded that the key to our usefulness in the kingdom of Christ is not your past track record, good or bad? Good. Or bad, because for Peter, before his denials, he was probably looking at a track record that he rated pretty highly. But that was not the key to his usefulness. After his denials, he had a track record that he probably rated pretty poorly. But that was not the key to his usefulness in the kingdom of heaven. The key is rather the real awareness in the present. Whatever the track record has been yesterday, good or bad, of how unworthy and how unfit we are. And therefore, also a sincere and humble, in your handout, key word, a sincere and humble love. Love for the one who loved us anyway. He's forgiven us so much. All of us ought to be able to say, I love you, Lord. But underlying that profession of love, should be the heart and the attitude that says every time, not just, I love you, Lord, although it's not a sin to say that, but underlying that should be the heart and attitude that says every time, yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. It doesn't matter, Lord, in the end what I say. It matters only what you know. It is not my validation of my love that counts but your gracious recognition. Jesus has now formally reinstated and commissioned Peter, at least it appears so. Peter has professed his love for Jesus. Jesus has demonstrated that he accepts Peter's profession, right? I mean, if Jesus doubts Peter at this point, why would he tell him now, tend my lambs? Why then do we go on to read in verse 16? And I invite you to ask yourself that question. Because this is the question that I probably spent a whole day this last week trying to grapple with and understand. Why does he go on 
to say in verse 16, a second time, Peter, he said to Peter again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter obviously could have written, now, keep thinking about the answer to that question, because it's not, it's not just a, an easy, uh, simple one. Peter could have written only, he said to Peter again. Instead he writes, he said to Peter again a second time. Obviously, John is counting. We know that. That means that Jesus is counting too. Right? Jesus is counting. We remember what Peter said to Jesus on the night of his betrayal and then what Jesus answered. Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Implication, no, I will lay down my life for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So Jesus said to Peter again a second time, though this still does not answer the question why. It it does and it doesn't. It's not the full answer, right? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. you What do you do when someone asks you the same question a second time? you give a more thorough answer. You start marshalling proofs. You start marshalling more evidence. Peter doesn't have any to to marshal. Although, in, in, in our flesh, we can always come up with something. And Peter doesn't try. He doesn't resort the second time to an attempt to convince Jesus. He knows that's not what Jesus is looking for. So what is Jesus looking for? Indeed, let me ask you again. If Jesus already knows, as Peter just said, you already know. Okay, we've established that fact. If he already knows that Peter loves him, why does he ask again? Why did he ask the first time? Surely, Peter has already expressed his bitter remorse, right? Peter already wept bitterly. Jesus already came to Peter. No doubt Peter has already told Jesus how horrible he feels about what he did. What is going on here then? The key. And this, I I told, see here's the thing. When we come to passages like this, sometimes we are not able to see what's going on. And here's why. Because we're dealing with a perfect Savior. And the reason we can't see it, it's not like I've, We've, we come up with something with some cool new approach to the text. No, the reason we don't see it is because we are so imperfect. Because we project our imperfections, even subconsciously, even on Jesus. So it's hard for us to grasp, what is Jesus doing here? Because we're not coming from the place of perfection, of infinite wisdom, of perfect kindness, of, of sublime love. So, the key to understanding this is to understand that this isn't so much a test. That's, how I think, how we often see it, a test. Neither is it a, so much a call to careful self-examination. Peter, look deep inside you, make, make sure. No, this is a gracious, I can't wait for this word. It's a gracious invitation. 
See, by asking this question, Jesus is inviting Peter graciously a second time to publicly profess his love for and his devotion to Jesus. Here's the thing. A public profession that in himself, Peter must have felt wholly unqualified and unworthy to make. How do you, how do you start professing your, your undying loyalty and devotion to Jesus publicly now? When you're the biggest failure on the face of the earth. Well, Peter never would have felt the freedom to do on his own initiative. Never would have presumed to do on his own initiative. Jesus now graciously invites him to do. What a miracle. Grace. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And upon receiving this invitation a second time, Peter publicly confessed a second time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And as we'll see in a moment, there's got to be both pain in that confession, grief, and also joy. Jesus said to Peter a second time, shepherd my sheep. Now, if we're following along here, How do you take that, shepherd my sheep? There's three different ways. And I struggled with this. This was, again, again, this was part of my whole day of sitting there not typing anything and trying to figure, trying to understand what my perfect Lord is doing. Because this is an imperative, shepherd my sheep, but it's not primarily an order. Imperatives in the Greek are not all orders, although there is an element of that here. So, in other words, it's not, well, Peter, whether you like it or not, Shepherd my sheep. Right? Not that he'd do it without tone of voice, but it's not primarily in order. Neither is Jesus now rewarding Peter with something he's earned. Okay, Peter, since you love me, you can shepherd my sheep. So it's not a reward for something Peter earned. Well, if you love me, then okay, shepherd, you can shepherd my sheep. Neither is this simply another test, which is what we make it out to be so easily. Okay, Peter, if you really love me, then you'll shepherd my sheep. Okay, you can maybe spend time thinking about all three of those things. None of them is what Peter is doing. Rather than being just an order or just a reward or just a test, what we have here is nothing less than the honorable commissioning of Peter. The king says to his Servant, his apostle, his restored apostle, I now commission you, Peter, shepherd my sheep. So after inviting Peter to profess publicly what he never would have dared to profess on his own initiative, after after giving Peter the platform to even say, yes, Lord, you know I love you, Jesus then, after having graciously given him that platform, commissions him and bestows upon him the most sacred trust possible. That is our Lord. This is our Savior. Shepherd my sheep. 
And then we come to verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now previously John said a second time. Now he says with this note of finality, we all know, right? We're all counting. Jesus is counting. John's counting. We're all counting. We know there's only three. So we've come to the third time. But why is Jesus counting? And this is where I think we, we, we can be too quick with our answers. We can say, well, well, he denied him three times, so he asked him three times. Like, it, we, we, it's got a match. Why? Is this, is this rubbing Peter's failure in his face? Like Andrea said this morning, is this just salt in the wound? Let me ask you a third time, Peter, just to, make, just to guilt you a little more. Is that what Jesus is doing? I, I mean, I would, I would ha- be happy to hear you all say no, right? And you don't have to do it. But that's how strongly we feel about that, right? We know the character of Jesus. This is not about guilting Peter. Though sometimes we need to be confronted with our sin. But Peter already feels as horrible as you can feel. What, what's the other reason Jesus could be doing this a third time? Is it because this is how Peter has to make up for his three denials, like doing penance? Well, Peter, you said it three times, so this is how you make up for it? No, there's no penance here either. So I ask you again, why three times? Jesus asked three times because he loves Peter, because it's for Peter's sake. He asked Peter the third time so that Peter and all the disciples who are listening might be in your handout fully assured, not just of his forgiveness, but of God's own work of grace in Peter's heart. See, this is about affirming Peter again. It's about what Jesus knows Peter needs. It is not Jesus who needs Peter's assurance. Peter, assure me a third time you love me, because I'm just needing that assurance. No, it's not Jesus who needs Peter's assurance. It's Peter who needs the assurance of Jesus. Therefore, it is not Peter who initiates this threefold public profession of love and devotion. It is Jesus who graciously affords to Peter this opportunity. Who invites invites him. Jesus already knows the answer. Jesus is simply inviting Peter to profess it publicly. To do what he could never have presumed to do himself. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Let me ask you again. Why is Peter grieved? Okay, watch. We have to be careful here. Is he grieved because Jesus hasn't forgiven him? And because Jesus is driving home his guilt just a little bit more? Is that why Peter is grieved? No, because that's not what Jesus is doing. That's not not who Jesus is. 
Why is Peter grieved? Is it because Peter, is it because Jesus is reminding him by asking him three times what a failure he's been? No, that's not why Peter is grieved. It's easy to know why he's grieved, right? Peter understands Jesus asks him the question the third time only because of his love for him. He understands that Jesus asks him a third time only for his own sake and for his own joy. But there can still be grief and pain in the very thing we know full well is for our joy. It, it's the way it is. And sometimes we, we just want, we, we can't fathom how the grief and the pain is part of the joy that comes. But in this case, we see, how could that not be the case here? How, how can I be asked by Jesus, if I just denied him three times and he now asked me the third time, how can that not evoke in me a grief? A grief and a pain at the same time that there is, that there is a joy and a newfound peace. That I who denied him three times have now been invited to do what I could never have presumed to do otherwise, and that is to profess publicly my love and devotion to him. So Peter was grieved because he understood. In the end, then, we can be sure he was also glad. Did Peter regret for the rest of his life that Jesus had to ask him three times? Well, yes, there was that, that he had to, I guess. But no, for the rest of his life, we can be sure Peter was glad Jesus asked him the third time. The third time. He didn't leave it at one. He didn't leave it at two. Peter was so glad Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Because here was his invitation to publicly profess his love to Jesus in your handout the same number of times as he had once publicly denied him. And so we come to the triumphant moment in this passage, which is brought to us only through the grace of Jesus Christ. Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Grief? Yes. And we know joy. With this third profession of love, which Jesus invited him to, which Jesus himself laid the foundation for. He now bestows upon Peter the third time the highest honor, the most sacred trust possible in his kingdom. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. This is the Jesus, this is the Lord that we come to as sinners. As people who fail miserably. It's not like Jesus overlooks things. But he deals with them in his mercy. So in your handout, see how tender are the mercies of our Lord. See how faithful he is to complete in you, in me, in us, 
the work that he begins. See, Jesus began a work with Peter. And that's why I, I never, until I studied this passage, I didn't necessarily see that this would be the title of this passage, of this message. But I really think an appropriate way to summarize what's happening here at this moment, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, yes, I love, is, is the title, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. May we too then be emptied of all self-confidence. Not the obvious carnal kind, but the more subtle carnal kind. Any self-confidence in our devotion to Jesus, any self-confidence in our, in, our, in our own love to him, so that we may then be fit and worthy for service in his kingdom. It's the only fitness, the only worthiness there is. May we then always be able to say with Peter, not just I love you, Lord, but Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are perfect. Your thoughts are are not our thoughts. Where we would never have restored a Peter to that kind of a position, that's what Jesus did. Where we would see, where we would project upon this scene uh, rubbing something in Peter's face, at least in our flesh, or making sure he examines himself a little closer. Lord, we see now the mercies of a Savior who who invites Peter to do what no doubt he longed and wished he could do, but felt like he never could. Thank you that out of his grief, even his grief in this, in this exchange, that out of that grief and through that grief, we know that you brought to him an abiding joy. A joy fully restored that we know remained with him to the very end. That though he had fallen so severely, yet you knew just how to restore him so completely. Lord, thank you that you are able to do this work in each one of us. So we pray now, again, even as we look to this table of which we have no fitness or worthiness to come to, we pray, Lord, that you empty us then of all self-confidence, of all confidence in our own, the strength of our own devotion to you or love to you, and fill us with that humble love that submits that love, even that love, to you. Lord, we come to you then together this morning and we all who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, who have died and been buried and raised up with him, we all confess together. Lord, you know all things. You know that we love you.
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.